Boston College School of Theology and Ministry integrates deep theological study with contemporary questions, preparing theologians and ministers who are equipped to respond to the needs of today's church and world. Generous financial aid is available. Learn more at bc.edu stm. Today, a German law firm presented its report on abuse cases in the Archdiocese of Munich. This report was commissioned by the Bishops' Conference, who will be meeting today, and the report identified some 3,677 uh, individual victims of sexual assault. In February 2022, a Munich-based law firm released a nearly 2,000-page report commissioned by the Archdiocese of Munich and Freising. It investigated sexual abuse in the church over seven decades. Dem damaligen Erzbischof Kardinal Ratzinger in Fällen sexuellen Missbrauchs ein Fehlverhalten vorzuwerfen ist. And like the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, the Australian Royal Commission Report, and similar reports in the United Kingdom, France, and a few others, this was big. And it forced the church to reckon yet again with the crisis of sexual abuse. But this time, allegations of misconduct went all the way to the top. And it faults both Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI and Cardinal Reinhard Marx. The German abuse report cited four instances where Joseph Ratzinger, the future Pope Benedict XVI, mishandled abuse cases, back when he was Archbishop of Munich and Freising from 1977 to 1982. The only way to consider this is that he failed. He did not value the victims and the safety of, of young people, the safety of people attending church, against the reputation. Mishandled is the official word the report investigators use. But what does it mean? It covers everything from deliberately covering up abuse, to turning a blind eye, to not asking enough questions, to relocating an abuser priest. All of this was common practice among bishops at the time, which means Benedict was acting no differently than many other bishops. But those practices are no longer accepted in the church today and victim survivors began calling for Benedict to give up his title, Pope Emeritus. So yes, we need him to relinquish that title of Pope Emeritus and show the world that they do care about us victims and that they do really want to understand the hurt that we've been going through. Meanwhile, the 94-year-old Benedict signed off on an 82-page response to the report. This included highly problematic and even inaccurate assertions all drafted without the input of the Vatican. It raised serious questions about Benedict's own culpability and about the influence of his handlers and their motivations for shaping his message. But this and other highly publicized controversies that resulted from Benedict's resignation raise an even more fundamental question for the church. What exactly is a Pope Emeritus? Benedict's papacy was a papacy of unintended consequences. He often was trying to do what he thought was right, and it ended up being in the wrong way. And so the post-papacy continued to be a post-papacy of unintended consequences. I'm Colleen Dully, and this is a special deep dive episode of Inside the Vatican. In this episode, we're taking a closer look at the role and title of the Pope Emeritus, and not only because it's tied up with some critical responses to the recent German abuse report, it's entangled with a larger set of questions and concerns about the papacy in the 21st century. For instance, in the modern age when popes are living longer, is retirement a good option? 
How should the church protect the papacy from political campaigning and power grabbing? If there can only be one pope, what is the role of the retired pope? Should he ever speak publicly? Would doing so undermine the leadership of the current pope? Should he continue to wear white? What should he be called? And we'll start with the question that vexed the world nine years ago when Benedict announced his resignation, which was, can he do that? Chris, first question, do you remember where you were when you found out that Benedict XVI had resigned? I do remember I was in the tablets office in London and I remember some TV producers calling into the tablet saying, is it true that Benedict XVI had resigned? I think people at the tablet were saying, no, that, that can't be right. And uh, were saying, this is just some false rumor. Good morning, I'm George Stephanopoulos in New York. We are coming on the air right now because Pope Benedict XVI is resigning on February 28th. That was announced by the Vatican just moments ago. He entered slowly, an old man ready to lay down the burden of the papacy. How do you say goodbye to a living Pope? That question has not come up in 600 years. And then as the chopper lifted into the evening sky, the bells of Rome rang out. I just checked on other sites and the news was going viral. So I then picked up the phone and I rang Cardinal Bergoglio in Buenos Aires. It was my first reaction. He answered the phone and I said to him, Cardinal, uh, we've got news that Benedict has resigned. And what did he say? Silence at the other end, silence. And then I said to him, we don't know much more because the Vatican has called a press conference in one hour. And then he said, I will phone you in an hour. So I was getting dressed and my cell phone buzzed and it was a friend who sent a text with the following message. The Pope just messed up your day. And I thought he had passed away. And so, of course, I went on CNN immediately and uh, it said Pope resigns. And I shook my wife awake and I said, honey, you have to get up. You have to get Grace on the bus. I have to go to work. The Pope just resigned. And she looked up from the pillow and said, can he do that? And I said, he just did. My name is Christopher Bolita. I'm a professor of history at Kane University in Union, New Jersey. And my particular fields are church history and the Middle Ages. It had been a long time since a Pope had resigned. The last pope to resign was Gregory XII, the man in his early 80s in the year 1415. And this is that terrible period of the church where there are three popes and three papacies. The here a pope, there a pope, everywhere a pope, pope chapter of church history. Over a hundred years before that chapter, there was Celestine V. And that is a hermit. Nobody could decide on who would be the pope. They said, hey, let's get a holy man. So they picked this, this fellow. He took the name Celestine V, and within six months, it was very clear that he was totally out of his depth in the shark tank that was the Roman Curia at the time, and he resigned, and he was basically kept under house arrest because the next pope wasn't quite sure what to do with him. So there was some historical precedent for a pope resigning, but nothing too recent. And when it did happen, it wasn't looked upon favorably. Dante had a particular spot in his inferno for Celestine V. He doesn't put him in heaven, and he doesn't put him in hell. 
He puts him at the spot, the threshold, the doorway reserved for people who did nothing good and nothing bad in their lives. And he called it in Italian, il gran rifiuto, the great refusal. Dante didn't think much of this act. But when Pope Benedict XVI resigned, his decision was mostly met with support. I think after the initial shock of the decision, that there was genuinely um, widespread response of he's done a, a courageous thing. He renounced power in a sense. It was an act of humility in many respects. I am Christopher Lamb. I am the Vatican correspondent for The Tablet and author of The Outsider, Pope Francis and his battle to reform the church. Not only did Chris Lamb agree with Benedict's decision, he saw it coming. I had a strange premonition in my mind that, that, that Benedict might resign, actually. He was under such a huge amount of pressure at the time. There were so many difficulties. There was VatiLeaks, a 2012 scandal in which Benedict's butler leaked confidential documents that revealed a power struggle between different factions in the Vatican, including the alleged blackmailing of gay priests. The Pope's butler wanted to pass Nutzi about a hundred pages of documents he'd photocopied and smuggled out of the Pope's own apartment. The documents also exposed corruption in Vatican finances and included an anonymous death threat against the Pope. The butler's leaked documents did not only point to financial cover-ups, but also suggested a twisted web of money, power, and sex. Benedict struggled to keep the scandal in check, and likewise struggled with how to handle the ongoing fallout of the abuse crisis. And there was a sense that Benedict, as Pope, was, was more happy, I think, not doing the kind of day-to-day role of being Pope. He's actually much more content writing theology and being Professor Ratzinger rather than Pope Benedict. The Pope's health was also in decline. Although he maintained a busy travel schedule, the trips were beginning to take a toll on him. Here's America's veteran Vatican correspondent, Gerard O'Connell. When his doctors told him after the visit to Mexico and Cuba in March 2012 that he would not be able to travel again across the Atlantic, he realized that the time had come to resign. Perhaps most important to Benedict's decision was his memory of Pope John Paul II's final years. John Paul's papacy spanned 26 years, one of the longest papacies in history, and Cardinal Ratzinger was working alongside him at the Vatican for most of that time. John Paul II was an active and charismatic figure with a booming voice. Perhaps I love you more. As a young man, he considered an acting career, and he loved to hike and travel, visiting 129 different countries during his papacy. But in the years leading up to his death, he was debilitated by Parkinson's disease. His once booming voice became feeble. In the end, he was relegated to a wheelchair and could barely speak. His inner circle began to wield enormous power, acting as gatekeepers and messengers. Was the feeble pope still in charge? What did his incapacity mean for the exercise of papal authority? No one really knew. 
At times, it seemed the papal office was in disarray. Watching this all unfold was Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, appointed by John Paul to head the Vatican's doctrine office in 1982. Ratzinger waded through hundreds of sexual abuse cases that were beginning to pour into his office, but there was little willingness from others in the final years of John Paul's papacy to address the full extent of the crisis. Ratzinger jumped into action tackling abuse when he became pope, defrocking some 400 priests and removing notorious abuser Marcial Maciel from ministry. But the memory of John Paul's final days ran deep, and as Benedict struggled to handle the abuse crisis and other scandals rocking the church, he began to think it may be time to pass the baton to someone else. Benedict thought long and hard about this decision to resign. A month after his doctors told him not to take any more overseas trips, Benedict mentioned the possibility of resigning to his secretary of state. Not long after that, he told Archbishop Gainswein, his personal secretary. He told Archbishop Ganschwein that he intended to resign. And also, Ganschwein tried to convince him against doing so. Apart from those two, he told his brother in the summer that he was going to resign. And then, very close to the time, perhaps the day before, he told the Cardinal Sodano. Sodano was the dean of the College of Cardinals. And I think he told his confessor. So four or five people knew, but really in the inner circle. It seemed like an ordinary February morning. The cardinals were gathered with Pope Benedict, who was about to promote three new saints. All the cardinals were expecting Benedict to give them his blessing. Instead, he read in Latin the letter of resignation. And then he got up and walked out, and he went to his study, and then broke down crying. Do you remember if, at the time, anyone thought that it was a bad idea for Benedict to resign? They stayed back in the hall after Benedict had left, and there was silence for several minutes. And then they started talking in little groups to each other. And I remember later Cardinal George Pell said that he didn't really feel very happy about this. Cardinal Rinze told me, the African Cardinal from Nigeria, he told me that he was shocked. And then he uh, said, well, I know he's a very prayerful man. And so I understood that he did it for the good of the church. And he was also giving us a lesson that we shouldn't be attached to positions. Aside from the immediate shock of Benedict's announcement, some Vatican officials were uneasy, even upset by the decision. Those who didn't like him resigning had various motives. Some, of course, had special roles in his pontificate, and they obviously lost that. It's not a very good reason why the Pope shouldn't resign. And good morning from Rome, where today Benedict XVI is saying his final goodbyes as Pope. It's a moment weighted with emotion and history. The first Pope to resign in almost 600 years. 17 days after announcing his resignation, Pope Benedict XVI entered the Vatican's Sala Clementina one last time as Pope. And shuffled hesitantly to his throne, 
He's slowing down, and he knows it. This meeting hall seemed like a fitting place for the cardinals, who were already gathered in Rome to elect a new pope, to greet the outgoing pope one final time. Often a place for meeting dignitaries and making important addresses, this is also the private chamber where the body of a pope lies in state upon his death, and the cardinals say their final goodbyes, where Benedict, eight years prior, had paid his last respects to John Paul II. I thank you from the cardinals for the pope they chose eight years ago. Cardinal Sedano thanked the pope for his service. Then Benedict rose from his papal throne and offered a final word of advice to his brother bishops. He encouraged them to embrace the differences between themselves, in the same way that the different instruments in an orchestra come together to form a perfect harmony. He then made a final public pledge of allegiance. I promise my unconditional reverence and obedience to him, Benedict said, promising to submit to the authority of the incoming pope when he was elected. And with that, the cardinals rose, clapped, and received one final apostolic blessing. Benedict then met with each cardinal, shook hands, and exchanged a few words with each one, standing for nearly an hour before shuffling out of the hall with the help of his walking stick. Later in the day, the Pope left the papal apartment to the thunderous applause of members of his papal household. One other moment of poignancy among the goodbyes. His chauffeur, cracked, stood sobbing quietly by the car. The crowd watched as he left the papal palace in a motorcade through the Vatican Gardens to a heliport where a helicopter awaited, all while the bells rang from every steeple in Rome. The short helicopter flight over the Eternal City in fading winter light they were blessed, as they say, with good weather. Benedict's final papal journey was to the Pope's summer retreat, Castel Gandolfo perched high above a lake. For the first time since the 13th century, a Pope had resigned, and the chair of St. Peter was vacant, ready for a new Pope. What happened after Benedict XVI resigned reflects the life and ministry of Joseph Ratzinger. It's complex and a bit of a conundrum. A brilliant theologian, but a poor administrator. A champion of the reforms of Vatican II, and a hero to many traditional Catholics who criticize or even reject the Council. A Pope who finally addressed the Church's sex abuse crisis, and a bishop who mishandled abuse cases in his own diocese. Viewed as a guardian of tradition, he then broke with 600 years of tradition by resigning. Benedict's final intentions and words were unequivocally clear. He would return to the life of an ordinary, faithful pilgrim praying for the church. And as Pope Emeritus, he promised he would remain hidden from the world. But that did not happen. Pope Benedict's resignation raised many questions. What would his title be? What would he wear? Where would he live? A few days after his resignation announcement, he revealed the general outlines of his plan in an unscripted talk to the priests of Rome. Although I am about to withdraw, he told the priests, I remain close to all of you in prayer, and I am sure that you too will be close to me, 
even if I'm hidden from the world. Benedict would remain hidden from the world in a monastery on the grounds of the Vatican, serving the church in a life devoted to prayer. But Benedict's withdrawal from the world didn't exactly go as intended. And Chris Belito says this was also true of Benedict's papacy. Benedict's papacy was a papacy of unintended consequences. He often was trying to do what he thought was right, and it ended up being in the wrong way. So, for instance, he brings back four bishops who had been excommunicated. He reinstates them. It turns out that one of them had been a Holocaust denier, something that could have been figured out with 10 seconds of Googling. Um, he wanted to start a conversation about Christianity and Islam in a speech in Regensburg, but he began it with a very provocative historical quote, I think forgetting that he was Pope and thinking that he was professor. And to his credit, he took steps to correct those mistakes very quickly. And so the post-papacy continued to be a post-papacy of unintended consequences. First, there was Benedict's article that came out in April 2019, just two months after Pope Francis had gathered the world's bishops at the Vatican for a major conference on preventing abuse. Catholic leaders worldwide are facing mounting pressure to provide justice for abuse victims after decades of cover-ups. As waves of abuse revelations shocked the U.S. Church in 2018, Pope Emeritus Benedict had remained silent. But two months after the Vatican conference, he released an article with his hypothesis about the root causes of abuse. It could be said that the 20 years from 1960 to 1980, the previously normative standards regarding sexuality collapsed entirely and a new normalcy arose, Benedict writes. He also says, quote, homosexual cliques were established in seminaries. It was a strange article. And if you read that letter, there is no way that Joseph Ratzinger wrote that letter. It didn't sound like him. It sounded like cobbled together table talk. Some of them were themes that he had, but it didn't sound like him. Jerry said that most people believed the article was a compilation of Benedict's previous writings that had been updated. So yes, cobbled together, but still Benedict's beliefs. And then there were other times Benedict's post-resignation statements raised eyebrows. In 2020, for example, Cardinal Robert Seurat, then the prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship, claimed Benedict had co-written a book with him on priestly celibacy. But Benedict's secretary, Archbishop Gainsfine, said there had been a miscommunication and asked for the Pope Emeritus's name to be removed. He now wants his name yanked as co-author, but the publisher of the American edition is balking. And just recently, there were concerns raised about the responses Benedict gave to the Munich lawyers who were investigating abuse that happened while he was archbishop. Benedict made some questionable arguments that seemed to excuse exhibitionism and even made a factual error, saying he didn't attend a key meeting where an abusive priest was discussed. Later, the lawyers who helped prepare Benedict's statement took the blame for the mistakes. But for survivors of sexual abuse, neither these corrections nor Benedict's apology were enough. As a representative for SNAP, the survivor's network of those abused by priests, said following the release of the report. We want to see a great shakeup at the Vatican and in the church so that us victims can have some kind of satisfaction that someone is answering to this sexual abuse of children. And other Catholic voices have joined in calling for Benedict to take accountability. Since he can no longer resign as Pope, all that's left is his title of Pope Emeritus. Would giving up that title bring greater honesty and accountability to both the Church and Benedict's own legacy? It's an important question. 
But the German abuse report also raises important questions about how the statements or writings that come out under Benedict's name are written, and how well they reflect Benedict's own intentions. I think we really have to ask if some of the people around Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, have been manipulating him and have been manipulating his words. And I find that very, very worrisome. As we know from the last nine years, even people outside the Vatican want to use Benedict as a pawn in the culture wars, even if that runs counter to Benedict's desires. So I think over the years since he stepped down, Benedict has been a kind of a shoulder to cry on for some people who didn't like the direction uh, of travel under Francis. Christopher Lamb wrote a book called The Outsider, Pope Francis and His Battle to Reform the Church, that documents resistance to Pope Francis. He says some Francis critics have tried to use Benedict as a parallel alternative authority to Pope Francis. Matteo Salvini, the uh, Italian politician, leader of the right-wing party in Italy, uh, who had a very anti-migrant stance, he had a t-shirt saying, um, Benedict is my pope. Benedict wouldn't agree with Salvini, doesn't agree with Salvini. But it was just this kind of a weaponizing or instrumentalizing of perceived differences between Benedict and Francis. Some people take the idea that Benedict is their pope even farther. When Benedict declared his resignation, he made a slight Latin error. Some Benedict fans jumped on this, saying that because Benedict had used a different word for ministry than the one used in canon law, Benedict's resignation was invalid, and thus Benedict is still the rightful pope, not Francis. Word of this reached Benedict, and he was not happy. It is very clear, and Benedict made it very clear on the one-year anniversary, that any notion that his resignation was invalid was absurd. That's the word he used. Despite all the people who want to pit Francis and Benedict against one another, the two men have only ever spoken highly of each other in public. On the 65th anniversary of Benedict's ordination to the priesthood, the Pope Emeritus had the opportunity to address Francis publicly for the first time. He said, a special thanks to you, Holy Father. Your kindness from the first moment of your election in every moment of my life here strikes me. It's a source of real inspiration to me. More than in the Vatican Gardens with their beauty, your goodness is the place where I dwell. I feel protected. Likewise, Francis visits Benedict often. He brings new cardinals to visit Benedict each year, and he's described having Benedict living in the Vatican like having a wise grandfather at home. It's clear that Benedict and Francis were on the same page, that Benedict's resignation was the end of one papacy and the beginning of another. But despite their best efforts, the idea of there being two popes is still too tempting for some to resist. You know, there's a saying, God always corrects one pope by presenting the world with another pope. I should quite like to see my correction. This is from the blockbuster hit and Academy Award-winning film, The Two Popes. Now, Hollywood may love the drama of two popes, but the real drama of manipulation and pitting one pope against another is a huge problem for church unity. So how can the church handle this? How do we make it possible for popes to resign in peace? Here's church historian Christopher Belito again. We need to figure out what will the man's title be? What clothing will he wear? What will his access to the outside world be? Let's start with the title itself, Pope Emeritus. 
So I don't think it's helpful to have the title Emeritus Pope, this two popes phrase is gonna be floating around. And sometimes it's used in a very threatening way. Hey, remember there's another Pope in town, which is not true. Lots of leaders who step down from their posts use the Emeritus title. We have Emeritus professors and Emeritus bishops. But a few years before Benedict resigned, another model emerged. The Superior General of the Jesuits gave up his position and his title. Up to then, the Jesuit Superior General was elected for life. But in 2008, Superior General Peter Hans Kolvenbach resigned and returned to being simply Father Kolvenbach. The issue with Benedict becoming Pope Emeritus rather than Cardinal Ratzinger again is that while you can have multiple professors and bishops, there can only ever be one Pope. You cannot have two voices speaking for the papacy when there is one center of unity and orthodoxy in the church. So instead of Pope, many have suggested that the title should revert back to their previous ordination as a bishop. When you resign, you should be called Emeritus Bishop of Rome. And then there's the question of what to wear. As the leader of 1.2 billion Catholics around the world, the Pope's garments carry profound symbolism. And often, the most powerful statements of a pontiff come from his gestures, his body language, and of course, his actions. So if there are two men wearing white at the Vatican, it can get confusing. Previous popes who resigned, and there are very few of them, did not continue to wear white. They went back to wearing either their monastic garb or their cardinal robes. The clothes, the title, and the blessings are all important symbolic changes, but they don't solve the question of what the Pope Emeritus's role should be, how visible he should be, how much he should say or not say, whether he should continue to publish writings. And I think, as Benedict promised, but did not live up to the promise, be invisible to the world. Benedict said that he would do that, and he has not done that. But a lot of that is not Benedict's fault. It was clear he intended to stay silent, and his only public words for the first few years of his retirement were limited and supportive of Pope Francis. It's only in recent years that Benedict has become more vocal, with the article and the book with Cardinal Seurat, for example, and it's worth questioning why that has only happened as Benedict's own health has declined. We now know, for example, that in the case of the German abuse investigation, Benedict wasn't able to prepare his own contribution. Instead, others compiled it on his behalf. Jerry said that many cardinals in the Vatican are coming around to the idea that we need some guidelines for future retired popes to prevent this kind of divisiveness from happening again. I think that there should be guidelines, but we should take a synodal path toward those guidelines as we should with everyone else. So I think that there should be a commission of historians, of canon lawyers, of theologians, of people who have worked in the Curia, and of physicians. And that team should come together and make a set of recommendations. But even if this team comes up with an agreed upon set of guidelines, there's only one person who can implement them. We follow canon law, which is that we make recommendations to the Pope and then the Pope decides whether it is law or not. The Pope, according to canon law, is the supreme legislator. Ultimately, it's up to Pope Francis to add any guidelines for emeritus bishops of Rome to canon law. And it's unlikely he would do that while there's a living Pope Emeritus, 
But whenever those guidelines are made, they'll be looking to the emeritus papacy of Benedict for lessons. Just as Benedict looked to John Paul II for a lesson on what to do at the end of his life. Ironically, though, many of the things Benedict resigned to avoid, like people manipulating him, twisting his words, or using him to gain power for themselves as his health declined, those things ended up happening to him anyway as Pope Emeritus. But Benedict is a teacher. He always has been. He may have foreseen that these things would happen as he got older and decided to resign anyway because they would do less damage if he weren't Pope. Maybe he knew that his resignation would come with some messiness, and some important lessons, even if some of them were learned at the expense of his own legacy. Now we know the consequences of having two men wearing white and calling themselves Pope. Now we know the consequences of a former Pope publishing as his health declines. It's possible that with some guidelines, this could have been prevented. But almost no one was thinking about guidelines for retired Popes when Benedict resigned. He was, after all, the first pope to resign in 600 years. And now, because Benedict took that first leap of faith and humility in resigning, the church has learned exactly what it needs to move forward. Now we know. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This deep dive episode was reported, written, and produced by Maggie Van Dorn, Ricardo Da Silva, and me, Colleen Deli. Production assistance from Kira Hanlon at America Media and Robert Balasser at the Jesuit Curia in Rome. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Audio engineering by Ashley Spillane. Special thanks to Christopher Lamb, Christopher Bolito, and Gerard O'Connell. For more on the legacy of Pope Emeritus Benedict, visit americamagazine.org. Also, check the show notes for some articles we think you'll enjoy on this topic. You'll also find links there to the work of our guests. If you liked this deep dive episode, please help us spread the word about the show by sharing it with a friend. You can also support our work by purchasing a digital subscription to America Magazine at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thanks. For America Media, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. We'll see you again next week for a regular episode of Inside the Vatican.